because I do believe there are maybe some outliers that, that like this, but I would say the vast majority of us, none of us like to be alienated. None of us like to be labeled as different. No one wants to be labeled as odd, right? We, we all remember being in middle school, don't we? Those of us who already went through middle school, we know what it's like to be that person when the, all the group turns and looks at us. We're like, please don't look at me like that. I want to fit in with you all. We all, we all remember the school, the, the middle school that, that got to fit in with the, the click. Human nature has a deep-seated want to be a part of a community. We want to fit in. We, we, don't, we don't want to be the ones that are, that are separated from the pack. We don't like when the whole group is staring at us. However, church, I'm going to say this very cautiously because it, it may be scary, and to some it may be, well, rather concerning. I'm going to say it as kindly as I can. We have been called to live set apart. In other words, you have been called to be different, to not look like, act like, or be like the world. And I was reading this week about conformity, and I was reading this week about the church being called to be set apart, and I I came across one author. Now, this is a very harsh statement, and I I just want you to listen to it. He says, my fear today, and this was a few years ago when he wrote this, he said, my fear today is that many churches are dying because the average person in their pews have no idea what it means to be set apart from the defilements of this world. He said, churches are dying because as Christians, we don't know how to live set apart. He said the, the church, in many ways, is so worldly-minded, it is actually difficult to see any real separation from the world. He said the modern church actually looks like the world does, and so there really is no separation. He says we dress as provocatively as the world, our entertainment is as debauched as the world, and we are preoccupied with the same secular trinkets, trinkets as is the world. In his book, in his writing, there was actually an article, he made the broad assumption that there is right now no difference between the world and the church. Now, as I said before I read it, that's a very harsh statement, right? You might be thinking, Pastor, that's a, man, that's a, that's a little bit rough, right? And I, I don't, I don't want to make a broad assumption that all churches and Christians are alike. I don't want to make that assumption because I do believe there are a lot of churches that are living very separate. I believe there are a lot of you or the majority of you as Christians are living different than the world. So I don't want to make that broad assumption. And I want you to leave here like, man, the pastor really just, he doesn't believe in the church anymore. No, that's not at all what I'm saying. I want to use that, that paragraph that he wrote in his article as, as really as a caution. Because we have not been called to be like the world. You and I, as Christians, when we, when we say, I want to be, because we know what Christian means, right? Christian means to be a christ follower. They called us Christians. They said, you are, you are Christ followers. You follow the teachings of, of Christ. And if we're going to be Christ followers, if we're going to be people who live like Christ, then we have to be willing to be a little bit different. And we have to be willing to be set apart from the rest of the world, especially the secular world. And church, it is my deepest concern. It is my deepest passion that our church and the church as a whole, I'm not talking just the Westling Church, I'm talking denominationally wise. I I, I hate to burst bubbles, those of us who are are through and through Westling, is when we make it to heaven, 
Yeah, some other denominations are going to be there, all right? Lean to, your, lean to your neighbor and say, yeah, they're going to be there, all right? We may disagree in some doctrinal areas. However, it is my prayer that all churches, not just ours, but all churches, will once again be living set apart. That the church as a whole, nationwide and worldwide, we will once again be labeled as different. And when people see us, they will see something different and special about us, and they will want that because that's attracting, right? To say, I want to be like them because they, even in the hard times, they have joy. Even in the tough times, they're, they're able to make some decisions that I wouldn't have been able to make. I want to be like them. But if we look just like them, church, how, how are we going to attract them? We've been called to be set apart and that's why on Wednesday nights we've been going through different series about going deeper in our faith with God because until we have a genuine relationship with him, listen to me, this, this, is, this series that we're going to be going into after God's own heart, I, I, my passion is that the whole church will do it. However, this series is going to be a very personal series. It's going to be about you and I and our hearts. And so what I don't want you to do in this series is sit here and be like, man, that person needs to hear this. How many of us have ever sat here and thought, man, that person needs to hear this sermon? I'm going to raise my hand because I've done it. I've done it. <laughs> We've all sat here and be like, man, my wife really needs to hear this. Or, man, my husband, I wish he was here. He could really hear this. Or, man, my child. No, what we're going to do is we're going to say, I need to hear this. Everyone say it with me. One, two, three. I need to hear this. Because until our hearts are in line with his, we're never going to be able to live set apart. Until I'm willing to live set apart, we can't expect a church to live set apart. And until I'm willing to do this, how can I expect other people in my community to do this? It's very personal. And I was reading this week from Abraham Lincoln. He wrote an address to the nation during the Civil War. And it was his proclamation for a national fast day by which he did designate and set apart Thursday, the 30th day of April, 1863, as a day of national humiliation, fasting, and praying. And this is what he wrote. He says, it is the duty of nations, as well as of men, to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God. Listen to this. He says, to confess their sins and transgressions and humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon. And then listen to what he wrote. He says, it behooves us then to humble ourselves for the, before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. So church, if we want to live set apart, if we want to be different, though it's scary, right? It's, it's scary to say, I'm going to be different from the rest. But if we're going to live set apart, then we have to, as, as Lincoln said, we have to humble ourselves before him. We have to confess our sins to him. And we have to live daily in the resurrected life. We have to live daily in the resurrected life. Not every now and then. You see, to be set apart means I'm going to do this daily. I'm going to be disciplined to do this every day. And so... As I was putting this together, I thought, we really need an example, right? If you're like me, it's hard to read the instruction manual and just go and do it. 
Now, if you can do that, then you are better than I am. Because whenever I do anything, whether it be fishing, hunting, working on my car, whatever it is, I like YouTube. Because it gives me the step-by-step picture of what I'm supposed to do. Because if I just read it, then I don't have an example of it, right? I, I, I was a hands-on learner. So when, when teachers would tell me to do something, that's why I always loved science. Because science teachers, they, they, they put it on hands-on. And so I said, well, we need an example of this. What does it mean to, be, to live set apart? What does it look like? There, there has to be an example. We need to, to see what this looks like. I don't want to just tell you, live set apart, amen, Christian, sing us a song, and let's go about our business. What does this actually look like in the practical sense? And so over the next several weeks, you and I are going to be looking at the life of King David. Because King David knew what it meant to live set apart. In Acts chapter 13, verse 22, it says, After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse. Listen to this. A man after my own heart. A man after my own heart. That was God testifying about him. And to understand why David was a man after God's own heart, we need to, we need to see the, the characteristics, right, that qualify him for such an exalted depiction or, or an exalted description. To say a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart, the creator of the universe's own heart. I mean, here in the book of Acts, God is, God, God, God is sharing his feelings about David. It says he testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. Listen to what he says here. He will do everything I want him to do. And to answer as to why David was considered a man after God's own heart, it's found there right in that verse. David was willing to do whatever God wanted him to do. He didn't sit, beg, borrow, and plead, and, and cry about, oh, I can't, no. He was willing to do it. And for those of you who know this story, then begs the question, well, okay, pastor, you're saying he's a man after God's own heart. Well, I'm not. The Bible is. God's are saying it. <laughs> However, if you read the story, didn't David commit some horrific sins? Yeah. I mean, he, he committed some, some, some terrible sins that, that you and I can't even imagine. I mean, he was an adulterer. He was a murderer, right? And here's this man who has sinned. I mean, just the atrocities were horrible. And how could he, how could he be a man after God's own heart and do that stuff? Well, we're going to be examining that over the next few weeks, so please continue to join us. Don't let this be a one-off. Keep coming back, because we're going to talk about that, because there is, there is no way that I can possibly pack the life of David into one sermon. I don't got that kind of time, guys, all right? And, and there are several books in the Bible that talk about King David, and if I was able to pack it into one sermon, none of you would want to sit here that long, right? You're thinking, Pastor, I got something cooking in the crock pot right now. You need to wrap this up, right? No one wants to sit here that long. So we are going to make an entire series out of why David was a man after God's own heart. But we need to go to the story. So if you go, to, we're going to quickly go through 1 Samuel. So go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 10, and we're going to go just jump some chapters, okay? We're going to go really quickly. I'm going to give you the history of it as to, as to why David was able to do what David did. So David was anointed by God. He was anointed for a reason. God saw something in David that would set him apart from others. And so when the Israelites wanted a human king, the prophet Samuel, 
He anointed Saul to show that God had set him apart for this special role. However, Saul, Saul how do I say this? Saul was a troubled soul. Um, Saul had some, he, he had some problems. And so because of that, Saul dis, uh, disobeyed God, and God rejected him as a king, and, and it was time for God to choose someone else. And so he sent Samuel to Jesse of Bethlehem, telling him, and this is in 1 Samuel 16, so go all the way now to 16, like I said. Read that story. I don't have time today to read that entire story to you. It's a lot of chapters I just went through. However, he says, I have chosen one of his sons to be king. And then after being told that all of David's brothers were not the ones, right? So, so here, here is Samuel, and he's there to pick one of, one of Jesse's sons, and he sees these big strapping young men come up before him and said, this, this guy right here, he's a warrior. This guy right here, he, he knows what he's doing. This guy right here, he's a leader. And God looked at all of the sons and said, no. Sure, they, they, they're, they're good guys. I'm not, you know, God wasn't trying to belittle them. They were good men. However, God didn't see in them what he saw in David. And so when Samuel laid eyes upon Jesse's youngest son, the shepherd David, the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. And when Samuel anointed David, well, it didn't instantly make him king, but it did, did signal that he was the Lord's chosen one. And scripture says, I think it's verse 13, from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And then after that, we, we jump into the next story, which is what we're going to unpack today as to what made David so special. So he is the anointed one. He is the, he's the next king of Israel because God sees something in him. When God looked down, he saw something. Church, I want to tell you this morning, when God looks down on you, he sees something in you that you do not see in yourself. He sees something in us that we do not see in ourselves. And he says, I want you. But the enemy whispers in our ear and he says, but you're not good enough. And God says, ignore that voice and just come to me because there's something in you that I see that you cannot see in yourself. You see, when everyone else saw David, he was the youngest son. The youngest son back then, it didn't matter. I'm, I'm a youngest son. Trust me, sometimes we're just the forgotten ones. And I know if my mom's listening in, she's going to say, no, you're my precious one. But that's a whole other story, church. All right? <laughs> Sometimes the baby sons, we're the, we're, the, we're the prized possession. Where's Gabe at? I know he knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> right? The, oh, he's up in the sound room. There it is. Gabe, Gabe knows what I'm talking about. Sometimes the young, youngest son is, is the prized possession. However, back in that culture, the youngest son wasn't the prized jewel. But God saw something in him. And what did God see in him, church? Well, it's the first thing that we're going to talk about in this series. It was David's unwavering faith in God. It was his unwavering faith. And, and, and we might as well not even go into the rest of the series if we can't get this one down. Because all the characteristics are second to this one. The trust in the faith that David had in God. And so let's go to the story. It's, it's found in 1 Samuel 17. And this is perhaps David's biggest claim to fame. I know, I know most of us know this story. It's the legendary showdown between David and Goliath. The little shepherd boy battling the Philistine giant. And so you have the Israelite and the Philistine armies. They're lined up on opposing sides, right? And they're going to clash. The wars back then, they were totally different than today's modern warfare with guns and bombs. And you can, I mean, we can hit targets halfway around the world. Back then, you were, it was hand-to-hand. -hand. 
And so what they knew was, is when you have hundreds of thousands of men lined up and they come and clash, you are going to have dead bodies. It's inevitable. On both sides, people are going to die. So what they would do sometimes is they would say, look, instead of having hundreds upon thousands of men die, why don't we have our greatest warriors battle it out? One-on-one, the armies will watch, and the winner, that's the victor. Save some lives. And so what do the Philistines do? Well, they send Goliath, this behemoth of a man, the biggest guy anyone's ever saw, and he, he was the warrior. He was the one that was going to win for the Philistines. And so Goliath taunted the Israelites, and he challenged them to decide the battle with a duel, him against one of them. But if you read the story, nobody wanted to take him up on the offer. I mean, you really, to, to, to fully grasp this, you've got to put yourself in that context, right? So imagine the biggest, baddest dude or the biggest, baddest woman that you know in your life or that you've ever seen before. And imagine yourself, that person that's as tough as nails, and imagine yourself going up toe-to-toe with them and say, I'm going to knock you out. Now, if you're like me, I don't like to fight. I hate it. I, <laughs> full transparency. I've been in some fights, and I don't like being hit, so I will try to talk my way out of it every single time. I don't like fighting. I hate it. <laughs> I don't, I, it's not fun. And so if, when I think of some big bad dudes in my life, I've seen, you know, I was in the Army, I've seen some guys, I look at them and think, no. <laughs> Absolutely not. I'm not going to fight you. And, and then we look at these MMA fighters, and I'm thinking, why would someone get into a ring like that and just get their skull bashed in? To me, it's not appealing. I'm going to talk my way out of it, and I'm pretty good at it. All right? God has called me to talk for a living. Trust me, I can talk my way out of it. By the time I'm done talking, I'm halfway across the parking lot. You don't even know where I went. All right? And so that's what the Israelites are doing because we, 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 criti- we criticize them. Man, why wouldn't they do that? Because you've got to think of the baddest dude you've ever seen holding a sword, a spear, and, and a shield saying, I want to kill you. And we criticize the Israelites. We're like, well, I can't believe no one stood up to fight. Well, it was different back then. Because when they went to fight, that means one of them was going to die. And so the Israelites say, no, I, I'm not fighting him. <laughs> Send me someone else, I'll fight them. But I'm not fighting that guy. And so this went on for days. But then enters the little shepherd boy. Then enters David. Oh, church. This is when the story gets good. This is when you're sitting in the movie theaters and you're holding on to your seat like, what's about to happen? And he's listening to his father and he went to the camp to his brothers. And when he came upon the, the Israelite camp, he heard Goliath's taunts. And interestingly, Goliath, he wasn't just taunting the Israelites. No, maybe, maybe David could have let it slide if he was just taunting the Israelites. However, Goliath, he was defying God himself. Every day Israel, and, and this, is, this is also interesting, I read this this week, it says, every day Israel declined Goliath's challenge. They conceded that their God was no match for the Philistines. And David looked around and said, nope, we're not going to have that. Here is this giant who was belittling the Israelites and cursing their God Here was this this man who was ready to kill everyone, saying, God's got nothing on me. And David, who was willing to step up, said, "Mm -mm, I'm not going to let you attack my God like that. 
And so he convinced Saul to let him challenge Goliath. And David, he went to the river, he chose some stones, and he went out to meet him. And Goliath, being who he was, he mocked him and cursed him. However, David said something that all of us need to hold on to, church. Listen to what he says. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. Church, that's some powerful words right there. He says, yeah, you're big. You got everything going on for you, but I got God. He continues, he says, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear the Lord saves. Listen to this, church. He says, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all all of you into our hands. Did you hear that, church? He said, the battle is the Lord's. Lean to your neighbor and say, the battle is the Lord's. Lean to your other neighbor and say, I get you're going through something, but the battle is the Lord's. Church, he was facing the biggest guy anyone's ever seen, the greatest warrior anyone's ever seen. He said, oh, well, come at me, bro. The battle's the Lord's. You got, I got, you got nothing on me. And what did he do? Well, he went into that fight, and David killed Goliath with one stone straight to the head. And then he went, as he said, and beheaded him. And the story of David and Goliath has been told so many times through literature and, and art, the David and Goliath and their confrontation. It, it has really been, it's been portrayed as this cliche symbol, hasn't it? This underdog story. This, you know what, the little man, he can, he can take him on. But I hate that it's become cliche. I really do. And I know I keep saying, hey, that's a harsh word, but, but I really do. I, I despise the fact that, it, that it's become this cliche symbol of, of this underdog story, this little guy attacking Goliath and, and the little guy won. The reality is this is, in the Bible, this is not an underdog story. That's not what this is. This isn't about David defeating Goliath. I mean, that, that's awesome. Congratulations. That's great. But what it's about, it's a story about faith. This, it's become this cliche thing about, about, oh, look, the underdog, he can, no, I, I love underdog stories. I really do. I think they're great. They, they have their place. But this is not an underdog story, church. This is a story about faith. David's faith would become one of his defining characteristics, and it led him to overcome countless enemies after Goliath. This is about the youngest son who has now been anointed to be the next king, stepping up and saying, you know what? There is a giant standing in front of me. I can't defeat him, but the Lord holds the battle. I got faith in my God that's going to help me overcome him. This isn't an underdog story. This is a testimony about how powerful our God is. Church, do, do, do we understand that? It's not about David beating Goliath. It's about David trusting in God, having faith in God. So when everyone else was running away, he said, I'm going to stay in the line. I'm not going to let you defile my God. I'm not going to let you curse my God. I'm not going to take it anymore because I know that God already has a battle in his hands and I'm going to go forward with it. It's a story about faith. And David's unwavering faith when everyone else ran from the battle, David ran toward it. David trusted God with his life. He had faith that God would not give him death. 
but, but victory. And David was so calm and confident. He knew early in life that God could be trusted and should be obeyed. It's clear in the Bible that David's faith pleased God. Church, it's a story about faith. It's a story about unwavering faith, and God rewarded his faithfulness. Church, listen to me. When we're faced with life's challenges, because we're all faced with life's challenges, right? Whether it be losing a job or struggling in relationships or not getting what you expected or, I don't know, maybe illnesses. We're, we're all faced with challenges. The, 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 the question that stands isn't whether or not I can tackle that. It's, it's how am I going to respond to that challenge? How, how the, 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 the Goliath is standing in our way, right? All of us have Goliaths. All of us have these behemoth problems that face us. The question isn't how big is the problem. The question is how big is my faith? How, how much trust do I have in God? Because so often we, 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 we point at the problem. We say, look how big this is. I can't believe this. And we gripe and we complain. But what we don't do is we don't sit back and say, yeah, but it's got nothing on my God. You see, we were so often, we're like the Israelites and we run. Oh, look how big that is. Look how big. And David said, now nah, here I am. You kill me. I know where I'm going. Oh, well. Because the battle's the Lord. It's not mine. No matter what happens to me, God's already won the victory, church. No matter what happens to me, the victory's already been won. The question is, am I willing to go into the battle with faith that is unwavering? That's the question, church. You see, we have been called to be set apart. We have been called to be different. We have been called to be people after God's own heart. In order to do that, we have to model after David. We have to have this unwavering faith. And so let me, let me close with this question, church. Where are you putting your trust and your faith? Because the rest of this series is going to be important because we're going to examine the life of David and how he over, how when he sinned, he came back and all that stuff. We're going, to, we're going to talk about that. But it all starts with faith in God. And if, and if we're not putting our faith in God, if our faith is not in, in the Lord God Almighty, the rest of it doesn't matter. It starts with our relationship with him. So let me ask you, when, when faced with a battle, when there's a Goliath standing in front of you, is your faith in the things, the people, and the ways of this world? Do you run from the battle clinging to the world, its people, and its powers? Or when faced with the battle, do you look the Goliath in the eye and say, I'm not scared of you because I know the God who is with me. Bring it on. Because I know the God who is standing in front of me, behind me, and all around me. I know who already won the victory. Do you put your faith in God? And is that faith an unwavering faith as it was with David? And church, as Christian comes to lead us in song again, I want to read one more passage of scripture to you. It's found in Psalm 91. And if you want to take anything away from this sermon, and you want to post something or, or write it down or memorize it, this is what I want you to take away. Psalm 91, verses 1 through 2. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Listen to this, church. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge 
and my fortress, my God, and whom I trust. So church, when you're, when you're facing a battle, when you're facing a trial, when, when the Goliath is standing in front of you, stop running from it. Now, now there's moments where we have to step away and collect ourselves. I get that. David had to take time to go and pray and collect the stones, right? We understand that. I'm not saying go in there unprepared. Take your time. Go to your river. Get the stones. But in the midst of it, when it, when it is time to face that battle, don't be like the Israelites and hide, conceding, well, maybe God isn't that strong. No. Instead, say this. Make this your prayer. He is my refuge and my fortress. My God. I love how personal that is. My God and whom I trust. And so church, take some time as we sing this next song. I want you to ponder the question. Where am I putting my faith? Where is my trust? When I face a battle, when I'm going through something, where do I put my trust and my faith? Stand your feet with us, church.
place and we forget that. And so right now, Lord, for anyone in here who's looking for their place, looking to fit in, Lord, help us to fit in with your church and with you. Help us to find our, our place here. Help us to find our sense of belonging within the fellowship of these believers and in the fellowship of your Holy Trinity so that we can be set apart from the world, not to live in isolation, no, but to be your warriors, God. Help us to go out into the world willing to be just like David, having a faith in you that is unlike any other, being able to take on the battle. Help us, Lord. Strengthen us, Father. And Lord, you know my heart. You know how I feel about everyone that is here. Lord, we love them, and we care for them, and we want the best for them. And so, Father, whatever they're struggling with, I pray that you take it from them. And give them, Lord, the ability to have that unwavering faith in you. Reveal to them, Lord, just how great you are. Give them those signs. And as we leave here today, Lord, it is a beautiful day. The sun is shining. We have every reason to smile. And so, Lord, as we leave here today, Lord, I pray that you just fill us with all your joy and excitement. And it's in your glorious name that we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. I love you. And I'll see you next week.